Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Neil Pasricha is the New York Times million copy best-selling author of the Book of Awesome book series and The Happiness Equation. He is one of the most popular TED speakers in the world, and I'm so excited for his latest and greatest book, which covers the important topic of resilience, titled You Are Awesome, How to Navigate Change, Wrestle with Failure, and Live an Intentional Life. Neil, welcome. Thanks for having me, Jason. It is great to have you here. I've been a fan since your TED Talk went viral in 2011, the three A's of awesome. Uh, thank you so much for saying that. Yeah, that seems like a long time ago now. It is a long time ago. <laughs> a long it time is ago. a long time ago. So you kind of own, not own this word, but like have built have built a brand around awesome. And, you know, all your books, the TED Talk, your brand. So let's rewind and talk about the journey to awesome and how that all started. Sure. It started in a very not awesome place. <laughs> I was in a marriage two years in. Uh, that was not going very well. I, I didn't know it wasn't going well. I got home one night after work and my wife was sitting on the porch and she said, Neil, I don't think I'm in love with you anymore. We just bought a house. We're talking about having kids. She's been super, she was super open. She was like, I just, I'm worried that if I feel the way I do now in five years or 10 years or 20 years, it will be even harder to have this conversation. But I just don't think we're right for each other. I think we are two people on two different paths. And, uh, that completely shook me because I wasn't expecting it. I was a good little Indian kid supposed to get married, buy a house, have a job. Like, this is what I'm on my path. Where's the kids? They're coming. Um, and, and just a few days later, something worse happened, Jason, which is that my best friend Chris, Kim, who had been battling uh, mental illness for a long time, he sadly succumbed to that illness, and he took his own life. And um, I got a phone call at work from his sister to tell me that Chris had uh, taken his life. And uh, the one-two combo of those two gigantic tectonic life things happening in my late 20s, forcing me to sell my house, process a divorce, write a eulogy, and I lost 40 pounds due to stress. People at work were like, you look, you look great. What's your secret? You know what I mean? Like it was, I, was, <laughs> I had black bags going under my eyes. I was trying to find a condo to, to live in, to rent. So I was a disaster. And at this moment in my life, I remembered that my dad used to tell me when I was, I was a kid growing up, you know, no matter what happens in life, you'll never forget how lucky you are. He was from India. He's an immigrant. He was like wowed by snow. Like he was in awe by like the stickers on the bananas. He'd be like, this is from Ecuador. Do you know where Ecuador is? And I remember that sense of awe. And so I go home that night. I start, I type in how to start a blog into Google. I click the I'm feeling lucky button that no one ever clicks. And it takes me to wordpress.com, which I don't know anything about WordPress. And I start up a little website called 1000awesomethings.com. You asked about the word awesome. It was the, the word that came into my mind kind of randomly. My mother-in-law uh, at the time used to say, well, that's awesome about everything. You know, and so I had that word like baked into my psyche. And the number 1,000 was also just grabbing at straws. I thought, well, 1,000 doesn't seem that that bad, man. I'll just write a thousand awesome things to cheer myself up. And I come home from work for the next few nights. I start writing about the smell of a bakery, uh, wearing warm underwear from out of the dryer, getting called up to the dinner buffet first at a wedding. I start writing about <laughs> hitting a string of green lights when you're late for work, 
They start writing about finally peeing after holding it forever, which I will do after this podcast. Um, and, and anyway, the, the blog sort of eventually takes off. It, it, it hits like, first it just hits my mom. And I always joke that she forwarded it to my dad and the traffic doubled, right? <laughs> then they send it around one day, I get tens of hits. And in the early days of the internet, that was a lot of hits. I was like, wow, 20 people came here in one day? And then I got the first ever comment from a stranger. You know, I don't know if you know. This is like the, the little steps towards like realizing you got something. Like, this so guy doesn't know me. What, what year comment. is this context for audience? 2008. Yeah. 2008. And, and then 500 hits a day. And then 5,000 hits a day. And then one day I got 50,000 hits in one day when a post of mine called Old Old Dangerous Playground Equipment went viral <laughs> on a website called fark.com. I'm dropping a lot of old school internet words here for people that, sure. have, that have been kind of, you know, like you and me kind of been around the internet block for a while. And then I got a phone call a few months later and the voice at the other end of the line says, you just won the best blog in the world award. And... I was like, that sounds totally fake. Yeah, how much, no do, I, how much do I have to pay? Exactly. What <laughs> tiny country am I going to wire all my money to? Is this the Nigerian prince? Like, I didn't know what it was. But it was, it was there's, there's an organization called the International Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences. And every year, as you probably know. I you, have no idea. You this probably is won some me. of these awards. That it's, they're called the Webby Awards. Oh, yeah, the Webbies. We've won Webbies. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> but I go down there. And honestly, on the red carpet there, it's like Martha Stewart's on my right. Seth Meyers is on my left. I go accept this little Webby Award. And you, you and I both think, okay, well, that's, that's nice, 15 seconds of fame. But the literary agent community watches who wins the best blog award at that awards. So 10 of them approach me in my inbox. And then there's a five-publisher bidding war on my first book, which is called The Book of Awesome. That book came out in 2010, solidifying my control of the awesome word forever. I think... <laughs> Do you file the IP on that? Do you? Do you? I know. Although, although the design of that Book of Awesome logo was so profound, it was a rainbow scrawled font that I did do one smart thing, which is I said to the publisher, "Who designed that?" And they said, "We have we hired a freelance publisher in England." And so I approached that guy individually, and I paid him five hundred dollars to officially own that logo. Oh, that's cool. So I got the paperwork done, and so I can use that logo on like calendars, my own speeches and all that stuff. So I just own the logo at least. I don't own the word, but I own the rainbow scrawl logo, which did come in handy earlier this year when another book used the exact logo. And we had to, we had to go back to them and say, I think we own that one. So the new book, You Are Awesome, is about resilience, mm -hmm. which is not an awesome topic <laughs> for no. a lot of people. No. Why, why resilience? Right. So Book of Awesome is all about gratitude. I'm cheering myself up as I go through the divorce and the loss of my friend, right? This is the thing I focused on for a while. But what I haven't told you yet, Jason, is that a few years later, living downtown, bachelor apartment, I meet someone new. Her name is Leslie. We fall in love. A year later, we move in together. A year after that, we get married. And why do I tell you the story? Because on the flight home from our honeymoon, on the actual airplane, she tells me she's pregnant. So she buys a pregnancy test in the Kuala Lumpur Airport Pharmacy. She does the pregnancy test in the airplane, like above the clouds, in the tiny bathroom. And when I get home to Toronto, I then write my last book, which is called The Happiness Equation, which essentially is a 300-page love letter to my unborn child on how to live a happy life before he's born, because she tells me she's pregnant. So the last book's The Happiness Equation. Now I got kids. So we just talked about this before we hit record. I got three boys. They're five three, and one. They want for nothing. 
they live in an era of infinite abundance. They might never need to learn how to drive. They can press a button and a car picks them up. A phone entertains them and takeouts waiting on the front porch when they get home. My kids live better than kings did a few decades ago. And it's not just my kids. We all have longer lifespans, higher education rates, disease rates are declining. We, we live in a great era. But the waiting for that yeah, word. Here it comes. Big <laughs> boom. The side effect of the gold star participation ribbon, just beautiful. Who's got who's getting shipped off the war? Who's going through a famine? Like we we're, we got it pretty good. The side effect though is we no longer have the tools to handle failure or even perceived failure. Dr. Jean Twenge at San Diego University says anxiety rates have spiked 30% in the past five years. And it's not just anxiety. Depression is up. Loneliness is up. You know this. The former Surgeon General here in the States, Dr. Vivek Murthy, says that loneliness is the next major epidemic to hit us. Loneliness rates have doubled since the 1980s to now 40% of people live alone, and we have lower ever rates of declared number of best friends. Suicide rates also up. So we've got this kind of weird paradox where we live in the best time ever, and it's not, we're not feeling super good. And I see, so I'm worried about my kids. I'm worried about myself. I got thin skin too. I get two likes on a photo. I think I got no friends. You know, you get a nasty email from the boss. You're like, I'm going to cry in my bed. I'm, I'm not going to go home, home to work. And I hear this from everybody. We feel stressed and anxious and ugh, we, we feel all, we feel so thin skin and fragile. We're turning into an army, army of porcelain dolls. And so I wrote a book on resilience for my kids and for me as a guidebook to building a muscle that I think we all desperately need right now. So what are we getting so wrong here? I hear you. It sounds like technology is a big part of it. Yes. It's, it's the other side of technology. We live in an era of abundance where everything's available at our, thunder, at our fingertips, including lots of information. But there's also some downside with that. But like, what, what, are, we, what are we getting wrong here? Well, I, I mentioned it very loosely, <clears throat> and I was being maybe a little glib, but I was like, no one's getting shipped off to war. We're not going through any major famines. We haven't had a gigantic economic depression. Like, all I'm saying is, as a society, we have less challenge baked in that we have to overcome. And for the most part, children, especially if you look around, I don't know if you're feeling the same way, but your friends, I'm like, they're getting whisked off to like, I don't know, cello lessons and then, you know, going to nice schools where they're like patted on the head and given kind of nice ways to learn and work. I mean, how many kids do you see walking around with casts these days? When I was a kid, you signed someone's cast every Monday because some kid broke their arm falling off a playground. Sure. Now they also make the playgrounds a lot lower and they, they you fall into like padded rubber, you know, instead <laughs> of cigarette butts, you know. And so I just think that we've made it a little too, we've coddled. Sure. Our children too much. And I'm not saying just us. I've been cuddled. Like sure. I'm a 40 year old man who feels like I didn't have, I've never broken a bone. I've never, I, I was not in fear of being conscripted. I, I just, sure. so there's this ease that's prevented us from developing the musculature on handling challenge when it comes. Did you know after one of my speeches nine months ago, a businessman ran up to me and he says, Neil, my son graduated high school, valedictorian, captain of the football team. He got a scholarship to Duke University. He did great at Duke. He was on the dean's list, and he got one of these big jobs, one of the hard jobs to get, whatever, some fancy high-paying job. But on his first day of work, 
he called me that night from his bed crying, saying, I got a rude email from my boss and I don't think I can go back tomorrow. <laughs> so we're similar in that I'm a little, so I'm 45. You know, I also lost a friend to suicide in my twenties. You know, I lost my father to heart disease at 19. I think, you know, eulogy, I think I gave three eulogies before the age of 30. Uh, played sports, injuries, whatever, a lot of ups and downs. But at any rate, like I, I, th there's like some resiliency, I think, built in mm -hmm. to, to me. And so yes. where I'm going is like, okay, we have, you have three kids, yes. we have two little girls. I would never wish that mm -hmm. upon them. Like yeah. I would never wish them they lose one of us or lose a friend or I had some like mentally abusive coaches growing up, different era, but like mentally, like if I go back in time, like mentally abusive, they've been fired. But all, all good, it is who I am, I'm happy, you know. But I would never wish that upon my children. So my question to you is, I think, as parents, and I've heard things, you know, we're here in Brooklyn, and we've heard stories of like, okay, kids need more resilience, like, let's manufacture that. Mm -hmm. You know, like, let's push them on the playground a little bit, like. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you do, before we get to us adults, like, for kids, what do you do to you know, grow that resilience muscle. Cause at the same time, it's something you don't want terrible things to happen to your kid. And this is partly why it's become a problem is because of the, the, the contradiction in this beautiful question. And so my wife and I are still navigating this and we, we disagree on a lot of things. Like when my kids say, uh, last week they said, okay, daddy, I want to go to school. I'm like, okay, uh, do, are you good? Like you're wearing shorts and no jacket and stuff like that. And it's kind of freezing. It's November. And they're like, yep. I'm like, okay, let's go. And I took him to school. Well, that night, the teacher called my wife and said, during the one-hour recess, your children were the only ones with no rain boots, no raincoat, no jacket, and no hat. They were ill-equipped to be outside for an hour, and they got freezing, and they were wet, and they were horrible. You, you made a mistake. <laughs> and my wife kind of was like, I love my wife. She's incredible. She's like, what the heck did you do? Like, you sent our kids to school with nothing? And I was like, well, I knew it was going to be pouring and cold all day, but I wanted them to learn what would happen. And she's like, yeah, that's a nice little lesson, Neil, but like, you can't do that. And it's weird because I'm like, well, why not? Like, isn't the whole point to let them learn from their mistakes? Like, can't we, can't, like, learning how to ride a bike is a good example. Like, am I going to have my kid ride a bike just in the grass at the park or can I let him kind of go around? Do I have the comfort and courage as a father to let him make his own mistakes? Skin his knee, skin his elbow, chip. It's hard. It's hard. You yeah. don't want your kids to be hurt. But if you don't want them to be hurt so badly, Jason, then eventually when they do get hurt because life, someone will break up with them. Someone will, they will get fired from a job. Then they won't have the resilience that they need to navigate that. Maybe part of the reason you have turned out the way you have is because of those formative experiences. So you don't want to foist them yeah, to mentally ill coaches, right? but you want right. to let them have a bad teacher one year that they of don't course. necessarily get along with. You don't want to move them to like a charter school the next day and be like, well, I got you in a class yeah. of 12 kids because you're going to be better here. So essentially, I guess where I'm going is it, it sounds like it really, the, the way we need to think about it, and I agree with you here, it really is a muscle. And with the muscle, you can't just go to the gym and say, all right, we're going to put on 400 pounds in the bench press immediately. You need to work up to that. So it's a little bit of the knee scrape, a little bit of this over here. You're building it. You're building it. Otherwise, when something a little bit more traumatic happens, you're just not going to be 
equipped because eventually something will happen. Well, this is a great metaphor because have you heard of the word hypertrophy? So basically this is the way actually real physical muscles in your body do get bigger is that when you do a bicep curl, you're creating very, very tall, small and tiny rips in your bicep that in the healing process become stronger, very similar to the muscles that you grow. We talk about resilience through little tears, little rips, falling off a bike, having a hard teacher, then you're more equipped to handle things when you have the big things happen to you. What role do you think spirituality plays? And resilience. Yeah, it's interesting. I uh, I advocate something I call the two-minute morning practice every morning. It's a bit of a spiritual practice, and there's a lot of research out there that shows that mindfulness techniques, uh, meditation, prayer, quiet, deep breathing really help activate the prefrontal cortex, part of your brain responsible for focus and attention. So every morning I say, take two minutes and answer three questions. I will let go of I am grateful for, and I will focus on. This is as close to a spiritual practice that I personally have in my life right now. I've tried many different forms of meditation, and for me, nothing has really stuck with me. But when I write down, I will let go of, and I actually write down something I'm stressed about, I will let go of whether or not this book makes the bestseller list. I will let go of comparing myself to so-and-so who's much bigger than me. Like I'll write their name on there. I will let go of the five pounds I gained over the holidays. Based on the research from Science Magazine called Don't Look Back in Anger, when we can crystallize and eject those anxieties, we actually remove them. It turns out we used to have this baked into our religious practice. It was called the Catholic Confession Chamber. You know, and not just Catholicism, but Buddhism, Mormonism, Judaism, Islam have a form of emotional release. But you know what the fastest growing religion is in the world right now? Astrology. I'm <laughs> no. serious. Like astrology and tarot card reading are blowing up. Oh, wow. It's not a religion, obviously, but... Yeah, y- yeah. yeah. More, so National Geographic published a report saying no religion is the fastest well, know, growing yeah, exactly. religion, right? Meaning that we don't have this release valve anymore. I think that's partly why the website postsecret.com is gigantic because people are mailing this guy millions of postcards confessing things. So spiritually, spiritually speaking, on the, in the morning... I will let go of you right down. I am grateful for you and I both know all the research on gratitude practicing. It's got to be specific. It's got to be small. You can't just write family and friends every day. My husband, Antonio, put the toilet seat down. My boss, Jason, gave me a compliment in a meeting. Um, My kid got an assist in hockey practice, whatever, something specific. And then I will focus on, because the other thing that's a problem right now when it comes to mental resilience is we have too many things to do. The phone is part of this, but we have an endless could do, should do list all day. People feel overwhelmed by what they have to do. And so every morning when I get up, I write down, I will focus on, that's the third prompt, it carves from my could do, should do list, like one thing I will do. And it really simplifies my day. And then I revisit those at the end of the day. I will let go of, I am grateful for, I will focus on. So how do we, I want to, one last thing on yeah. kids, I'm just curious, before we go back to what us adults can do to, uh-huh. to flex that muscle, like what's your take on sports? Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. So sports are great. You, you, before we hit record, we're talking about some of the, uh, uh your experiences. Um, and as you said, it's an automatic resilience builder because you have good coaches and bad coaches. Yeah, you're benched, lose. you're cut, you're, yeah. you lose the game, you injuries. You, you're off the floor, you're not starting, you're whatever, right? There's all this stuff built in. Here's the thing. If you talk to children or say ninth grade gym class. And I don't know if your experience in ninth grade gym class was the same as mine, but in mine, every week we had a different sport. 
It was like volleyball one week, then soccer, then basketball, then whatever. But if you talk to adults, and this is partly what I think is creating some fragility, and you say, what sports do you play? It's like nothing, or I run, or I play the one sport that I was really good at when I was a kid. I still happen to play soccer or whatever it is. What we have What I've learned through a lot of research for this book is that there's an amazing study that shows that the Nobel, people that win Nobel Prizes are 22 times more likely than other scientists to have a totally unrelated amateur hobby or sport outside of their natural profession. Meaning that the guy who wins the Nobel Prize in physics or the woman that wins the Nobel Prize in biology or whatever it is, they're also part-time glassblowers or they play like, they're in the musical theater class at the local play or they also like are learning how to play uh, volleyball on the side having a new hobby or a new sport or a new something on the side of your natural strength apparently is a gigantic indicator on increasing your resilience because it increases your learning rate because of course the learning rate is the steepest when you know nothing about something so essentially so one thing with children you, you hear Okay, what are they like, and let's let's try to cultivate that and yeah. push them there. So that that that's fair, that's true. But at the same time, if they're not good at it, I'm saying the opposite. Don't, don't let them try. <laughs> well, it's hard to know because as a parent, of course, you want to just you know you don't want to punish your kid by saying you go go. But I'm what I'm the, the message I'm trying to leave with the story and this research that I'm sharing is always be doing something new because your learning rate is the steepest and your resilience will grow when you are learning something for the first time. So if you're an adult listening to this. I'd say sign up for a sport you've never played. If you're a child listening to this or you have a child that, you, that, that um, you're thinking about, put them in something they've never done. Sure. Your resilience will go up when you're doing something totally unconventional. And we, we know, like using that example of Steve Jobs, how he learned calligraphy at Reed College yeah. and it informed the Microsoft or this or informed the font for the Apple, which informed the font for all computers or whatever. Having totally unrelated side hobbies and weird asides actually increases the incongruence in your thinking on what you're doing, which increases your learning rate on what your your main thing too, which is partly why like the TED conference is designed to be totally incongruent ideas. Right. So to your point on sports, yes, sports are great, but keep playing lots of different weird ones no matter what age you are so that your learning rate's steep. So for kids, have them do everything. Does that have, and that's kind of what parents but, but then there's a, the flip side is, oh, uh-huh. they're doing too much, they're overscheduled. Well, I, yeah, exactly. Well, I, I, I use that ninth grade gym class metaphor that I think can be extrapolated up or down age-wise sure. to think of what you could do that would be new frequently, that you could start and be just boils down to have a weird hobby. Have a terrible hobby. Have something that no one else is doing that you just sign up for. And in my town, in Toronto, you can sign up for, like, adult, you know, squash and tennis and stuff. But there's another thing you can sign up for called adult, like, rotating sports, where every time you go, it's a different thing. That's the one you should sign up so for. So does, like, watching a new Netflix documentary series count as a new hobby, or does that not make the list? That's a good question. <laughs> I have to check it's the It's, like, research. intellectually stimulating. My mm-hmm. point is, is, like, so I'll find our, like, Colleen, I'll find ourselves doing that. It's, like, let's go. All right, I love basketball. I don't play anymore, but I love basketball. That's, like, my thing on my and I'll watch the NBA. Right. Um, does that count? Does it have to be active? So I interviewed Chris Anderson. Sure. The guy who runs TED yep. for my podcast, Three Bucks. 
And in that interview, he told me that the reason TED is designed to be, and I don't know if you've been to the main TED conference. I have or, not. So, you know, you sit through like all the, and I have not either, but I've been to a lot of TEDx's and it's the same design, which is like totally unrelated speeches mm-hmm. to one another. So that he, what he told me in the interview was by the end of it, I want people to have an aha related to their industry and their focus area that came from hearing all kinds of different things. And to your point about I watch basketball, we watch a weird document. This is all good stuff. What I'm saying is don't watch Desperate Housewives seasons one to five. Like don't watch one thing forever. You got to get out of your comfort zone in order to increase your mental exposure to what's going on. So I got that part. I think that's, I think we can all do that. Like that's not a, that's not a huge ask. Mm -hmm. Do something different. Stick with it. Be okay with not being great at something. So where I'm headed is this idea you touched on earlier with the the story of the the guy who went to Duke and yes. experienced success every year yes. everywhere he went, and then there was a little hint of I don't even want to call it failure, but like a difficult conversation. Uh-huh. So there, I have two questions. One is, do you think we're losing our ability to? embrace failure and it, and also like that's the high like failure is like this mm-hmm. thing where it's like a, a there is a there's a loss yeah and then there's this other thing which is a little bit more nuanced and difficult and that's what i call difficult conversation yeah so there's really good research on this um it comes from harvard by a guy named daniel gilbert who's mm-hmm. famous for writing the book stumbling on sure. happiness he went through a personal difficult year in his life And he wondered, he thought, I'll be feeling terrible about this next year. I wonder if everyone else will be too. So he got together some researchers. They interviewed 19,000 people and they, across all age groups from like age, the twenties to the seventies. And they asked them essentially two questions. The first question was, how were the last 10 years of your life? And the second question was, how do you think the next 10 years of your life will be? Every single person, no matter how old they were, painted a tempestuous portrait of the last 10 years of their life ups and downs. I was with Joe. Now I'm with Harry. Now I'm with Sally. I moved companies three times. We had to get a new house because so-and-so died. Like it was a crazy 10-year story. And I'm sure Jason, and I'm sure for me, everyone listening, we could all do that too. The last 10 years you're like, whoa, it's been a wild 10 years. But when asked that second question of what do you think the next 10 years would look like, did you know that every single person, regardless of age group and demographic would say, yeah, I think I'll be kind of where I am now. Like, I don't imagine changing companies. I'm sure I'll still be married to Fred. And, of course, we'll still be having, living in this, we'll still be having the same life. We, the researchers then called this, this is a phrase that's their phrase. If I own awesome, they own this phrase. This phrase is the end of history illusion. And this is, a, it's a, so it's a brain thing, basically. We all think that the world ends or will remain the same as where we are today. Which means, related to your question, if you do get fired from a job, or someone dumps you or whatever, you think, I'll never find anything again. What's going to happen to me? And when I heard this research study, you know what You know what I thought? I don't know if you knew this about me, but I worked 10 years at Walmart in HR. One of my jobs for a year was having managers who had to fire employees. I was the third person in the room helping them both in that conversation. It was very stressful. I lost a lot of sleep over it. I had to educate and train the managers and then I had to help the employee. Like, That's go why to, we're talking about difficult conversations. It's super difficult, right? <laughs> I, had to, I had to help them go to their car and pack up sure, their stuff. And, and pe- they would say to me things like, I'll never find anything new. Um, I, what's going to happen to me now? Like I, 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 I've lost everything. 
But why do I tell you that? Because when I bump into those people years later at a conference, at an event, a small world, Toronto, one, one industry retail, every single person who was fired would say to me the exact same phrase, which is, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I got to spend time with my daughter after her miscarriage. I visited my family in Peru. I finally started that business I've always been dreaming about, but I just didn't have the guts to do it. Every single person then painted a new picture where that failure was seen in a new light. Having awareness of this research study called the end of history illusion helps you, what I call in the book, see it as a step. Every single failure you do go through, whether that's the boy calling, crying, saying my boss sent me rid him, is a step towards a future you that you just can't see yet. So part of what I think we need to do when it comes to resilience and failure is just learn how to see it from a perspective where this is going to go somewhere positive. We know from the research, if you use your left brain more, that it's gonna because everyone paints the last 10 years as horrible and the next 10 years is the same. <laughs> so what are your general tips for having a difficult conversation? Oh, because I think a lot of people need help with that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So from this Walmart experience that I had, so the, yeah. so the biggest and Walmart's amazing with HR and Colleen yeah. used to work like it's an amazing, they do a lot of great, I feel like they get a bad rap and a lot of stuff, but they do amazing. I, I think the biggest conversation, especially in corporate is just be human, be a, be a human being. Like, like we always had scripts and there's stuff you can say from a legal perspective, but honestly, it's just like bring in a box of Kleenex in your back pocket. But, but like beyond like HR, where I'm just uh -huh. like difficult conversation in general. I think where I'm going is, you know, we're uh -huh. talking about technology and I think we're also used to like texting and, and just like the art of, the, not an art, but like I, difficult conversations. Look, they're difficult for everyone. And I think they're even, we're so used to communicating, whether it's on social media or text, they've become even more difficult. And a lot of people really struggle with having them. So I'm curious, like your vantage point, yeah. like for someone out there who's like, I need to have a difficult conversation, whether it's like a family member yeah. or an ex, like what, 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 are, what are your general tips? Well, I like the idea of general tips or common principles. So one thing that my wife has always reminded me of is um, be aware of sort of like the, the ladder of communication quality. I made that metaphor up, but essentially like if at the very top you would put in person face to face mm -hmm. and at the very bottom you would put like pure emoji texts or whatever, <laughs> then like somewhere in the middle is the phone call. Somewhere in the middle is like a Skype. Somewhere in the middle is like um, texting and then email. And then just be aware of where you are on that ladder and always seek to level up as best as possible. Many times when I have a stressful email related to my work or whatever, and I tell Leslie about it, she's like, can you grab, is it possible for you to pick up the phone? Yeah. And every time she tells me that, you know what I think? Oh my God, how did I not think of that? Like, of course she's right. But I'm just quickly want to write back a snappy email. So be aware of that ladder and seek to be the one. It's always the person who is taking the higher road, who can move it up to the better in-person. It's also call. so much harder to be, when you're in-person, it's harder to be difficult or an ass, or it just, it just, we're all human, I think, generally we're inherently good, and yeah. it's just, in-person, it's, it's just harder to be. Brené Brown has a great phrase about that. She says, it's hard to hate close up, move in. I love that. Yeah. And, and she talks about how when she was um, helping with the uh, uh, hurricane victims in Houston, nobody said, hey, which way did you vote? 
You know, yeah. we, 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 we didn't hate each other because they were Republican or Democrat or voted for Trump or voted for Hillary. It was like we were all in this together. People are hard to hate when you're up close to them. I imagine getting like the Twitter sphere in all the room and say, OK, guys, work it out in person. Let's see what happens. <laughs> now, it's also the other thing that that's missing from that principle, though, of course, is that it's hard to have the courage to meet someone in person or to pick up the phone. And I just interviewed uh, a woman by the name of Dr. Jen Gunter, who wrote a book called The Vagina Bible. Sure. And um, she's referred to as Twitter's OBGYN. And we were talking she, about some yes. of... Yeah, she's, she's amazing. And we were talking about some of the difficulties of, of communication in the world today. And she said she thinks one of the biggest problems is that when you text someone frequently, you think you know them. Yes. And say the next time you meet them is like to hook up physically then you think you know them enough because of three weeks of in-depth texting. And then when you're together, you actually discover that you don't. And so we are actually mistaking the superficial internet-based connections that we are forming as replacements for deep personal connections. And I mentioned earlier that we have the lower ever rates of best friends than we've had before. And the number of people that live alone and the rates of loneliness are both spiking. We're a social animal. Daniel Gilbert, who we just talked about, says the number one way to tell someone's going to be happy or not is the is the strength of their relationships with their friends and family. We grew up in tribes, and if you weren't part of the tribe, you definitely died by yourself on those plains with the saber-toothed tigers wandering around. So we have to be social, and our loneliness rates are spiking. That should scare all of us. That should, because there's no reason why anyone listening, including you and me, could not end up in a situation where we feel very alone for a very long period of our life. We have to foster those social connections. Very important, especially as you get older. So you mentioned hooking up, and we're going to talk about what you say there in the book in a second, but I want to close the thought on difficult conversations. So sure. one is ladder it up try in person. What uh -huh. other general tips do you have? Well, I think one thing I always try to do, um, and I'm not great at it, and uh, <laughs> my publicist Jessica at Simon Schuster is sitting behind us, and she, like, you can ask her if I'm good at this or not, is I try to just say, I try to recognize what the person's doing, the work that they're putting in, what their incentives are, what they're motivating. The more you can articulate their situation for them, the more they understand that they're understood. And then we aren't fighting over whether or not we understand each other, mm -hmm. right? But we're actually trying to figure out the same net positive goal. Articulate their situation, articulate their incentives, articulate their work that they've put in. Talk about what they've done. That lets the other person open up, blossom like a flower because they feel understood. You've heard like I have that that's the root human need. So if you can start to do that, the conversation doesn't yep. stay difficult very long. Yep. It will move to a natural connection because we understand each other. I love that. So we'll go back to the <laughs> the more provocative uh, point in the oh, book where you, you talk about you talked about hooking up. So in the book, yeah, you actually, this is when I saw this, I was like, whoa, this is interesting, Neil. You, you encourage more one night stands. Oh, oh, that's funny that you say I encourage it. Um, <laughs> well, it's how would you, how would you phrase yeah, that? Okay. So there was a study done and they published it in the Telegraph and um, they asked people that were in stable and loving long term relationships. Okay, to articulate the series of relationships they had had leading up to that stable, loving, long-term relationship. So let's say it's a happily married couple in their 50s. And they said, okay, um, 
how many boyfriends did you have? And how many times were you dumped? How many times did you dump somebody? How many times did you cheat? How many times did you cheat, get cheated on? How many one night stands did you, how many disaster dates did you have? And I almost want to pull up the numbers because it's actually crazy when you hear about it. It is um, the average person. Let me just look at this up. Oh, here it is. So this is going to kind of blow your mind because this is from the study. So the average woman will kiss 15 people, have seven sexual partners, four one night stands, four disaster dates, three relationships less than a year, two relationships more than a year, fall in love twice, be heartbroken twice, cheat once, be cheated on once, all before she finds a lifelong partner. And for dudes, it's kind of the same, except it's like kiss 16 people, 10 sexual partners, six white night stands. So it's like the same numbers, maybe a smidge higher. The point of the story is related to our a point that we made a few minutes ago, which is see it as a step. Right. Every breakup you go through, every one night stand that you think is going to turn into a long term relationship, but it's just like they never called me again, could be. No part- one calls Neil. They texted. They never texted. <laughs> I'm too old. We're, we didn't deal with this stuff. But. I didn't get a good emoji. No, that. Yeah. So, so it, it, the point is that. We get so heartbreaking and stuck in the present when something bad happens. And I'm painting one night stands as a not as a universal thing, but I'm painting them as like a, a negative thing for you. You feel like bad that this thing sure. goes somewhere. But the chapter is titled "Have You Had Enough One Night Stands?" Because I'm showing that the average person in a stable long-term relationship has had so many of them that maybe this is just a step towards discovering your sexual chemistry, learning something about yourself, understanding more about like what you need in a relationship. And that is huge emotional and relationship progress towards this, maybe the stable long-term loving relationship you might actually want. Right. So uh, the provocative title in the book is trying to get people to understand that the little failures they go through are often in service of a larger, more satisfying end goal. If you could just see that end goal even though it's invisible, you will see it as a step and that builds your resilience and it builds your confidence to keep moving. Instead of getting stuck thinking, I don't want to date anyone anymore because nobody likes me and I'm unlovable and I don't sure. look good, blah, blah. We all have self-talk like that. So see it as a step. And it's hard to see the forest through the trees when you, when you have these little traumatic events, whether it's a, a relationship that goes awry or something at work and, and a, it, it's hard to take the step back. And I go back to this earlier point, I think is interesting where you were saying essentially uh, religion is is somewhat eroding and Mm. people are looking for, and to me, I think spirituality, this idea that, okay, this shitty thing happened and like there's like a a stage, whether it's like denial, grief, anger, and then acceptance, and then sort of like this, this process where to me, having a spiritual practice you go through that but then you're like okay it happened there's something bigger going on whether it's god or Mm -hmm. whatever you believe in but there's something much bigger much bigger universe yeah and then you develop sort of this this playbook where you can go back and say okay this thing happened this was terrible and this is how it ended up working out or this is it made no sense but here i am today and you start to develop these data points, if you will, through life, through, and you say, hey, okay, this happened, this happened, and okay, and this thing happened again, this really sucks, but, you know, here I am, it's okay, and ha- having those data points that you can go back to, I think is helpful. And a grounding ritual that you can go back to, and a sense of, a, 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 a sense of calm or peace with something larger that is, yeah, that makes the, the this is the root thing. That you, you mentioned at the very beginning of this conversation, I saw your TED Talk. I have a line in that TED Talk that says, 
you know, we life is only 30,000 days long, and you'll never be as young as you are right now, and our time on this planet is always, always, always ticking. I don't you know. know. We, we have David Sinclair on the podcast. We're talking about reversing the biological clock. You think but, it'll but, go forever? <laughs> um, oh, no, I'm kidding. But we, we might go a long time, but my point is that the, the, the length of your life is actually just a gigantic it couldn't be more of a blink of an eye in in the grand scheme of everything, right? So only because we're the ones that are conscious and aware and living it does it feel long to us. But you only have 30,000 days. That's the average lifespan in the U.S. right now, 30,000 days. And if you're as old as you and I, you only got 15,000 left. Oh, man. We're already on on our second 15,000 because it's 83 years. So it's just about coming back to this idea of life is tiny and fragile and beautiful and precious, and you really are awesome. All we need are a few directional arrows to kind of get us back on the path when we fall off course. I love that. So one other thing I, I thought was, was was funny from the book is you're not a, you mentioned the TED Talk, you're not a fan of commencement speeches. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because here's the thing, they don't build resilience. They say to you, when everyone's got their cap and gown on, it's a sunny day on the quad, and someone's on the stage on a podium saying, Chase your dreams, follow your heart, do what you love, or some like version of these phrases. But the thing that's missing is a phrase that's never mentioned that should be in every commencement speech, and it should, it's this. Do you love it so much you can take the pain and the punishment too? Every single goal or achievement or desire that anybody listening has has a series of pains and punishments along the way. Scott Adams, who writes the Dilbert cartoons, would say, find out what the cost is to get what you want and pay it. That's another way of saying, (laughs) that's another way of saying, what's the pain and punishment? Everybody knows Mark Manson. He wrote this incredible book, sold 9 million copies, a subtle art not giving a friend, right? But what they don't know is that the guy wanted to be a rock musician. That was his life goal. But the pain and punishment of practicing the same six-string chord progression for six hours or lugging amps to a smoky club on a Tuesday or, you know, all that stuff, he did not want to do that work. That was not engaging work for him. But the engaging work to becoming a writer, getting into Facebook comment wars with people, like spending all night trying to get one sentence right, he enjoyed that work. Why do I mention that? Because so many people when I worked at Walmart would say, oh, I really want another job. Oh, I really got to get out of here. Well, I've been here long enough. But what I would ask them, and I wasn't as articulate then as I'm trying to be right now, is I'd say, are you cool with redoing your resume, handing it out to 100 companies, hearing back, getting dead silence from 75 of them, having 25, if you're lucky, call you back, having 13 interviews that you have to prepare and go to, and getting rejected from 12 of them, that's a six-month series of pain. If you are okay with that pain and punishment, guess what? You'll have another job. (laughs) But that, those millions of paper cuts on the way to that job are often enough to keep someone in stasis or, or like, in inertia, just staying in what they're doing. Do you love it so much you can take the pain and the punishment too is a question that includes the thick skin and the resilience you need to whatever larger aim you're focused on. And you have to think about that before you take the leap because there's pain on every journey. People see you, look at this amazing office. I'm in mind, body, green, all these amazing people bustling stuff. I saw this great art outside. You've got this amazing podcast. They're probably like, oh yeah, I should do that. Didn't take a salary for three years. Exactly. <laughs> it's, been, it's been at this for 10 years. No, you get it. Yeah. Um, but, but say that 
Oh, more. Because sure. it didn't take a salary for three years. Yeah, but very, three. very stressful time. I had a very uh, supportive wife <laughs> through that process. It was not easy. And you're, I think, if I'm sensing right, you're minimizing some of the pains and punishments along the way. And never mind people that you may have had to let go of, that you love, that you may be. I'm not, I'm not projecting, sure. but I just mean like, the budgets didn't come in, and so we had to let go of someone that was great for the team, or we got kicked. There was out of the, no team back. There was then. no team, or, or <laughs> we, had, we started to pay rent, then we couldn't afford the rent, and like we, we dropped our one camera and it broke, no, I, and we didn't have money to get a new one. You know what I mean? It's sure. just like so many things on the journey to building something like what you got. That's the pain. So there's a great line. Uh, so you mentioned the great art here. It's a mural from uh, the artist Peter Tunney. Um, he has he has a great line about being an artist. He's like, everyone wants to be creative, be an artist. If you want to be an artist, I'd say the number one quality you need to succeed is the ability to suffer. Aha! You need to master suffering. So whether it's people criticizing mm-hmm. your work, your work being terrible, not making money, like you need to succeed. And as an artist, the number one quality you need is the ability to suffer. And that's resilience. Yeah, that's exactly resilience. Todd Hansen was one of the first editors ever of the comedy newspaper, The Onion. Sure. And I read an interview with him in a book called And Here's the Kicker. It's an interview <laughs> with a bunch of comedy writers. And of course, when you're a comedy writer working for The Onion, people ask you all the time in every panel interview, so how do I get to do that? How do I write jokes for a living? How do I get to be fu- I'm funny. Everyone in my frat house laughs at me. So how do I get paid for that? And his answer is very similar to Tunney's. Tunney? Yeah, Peter Tunney. Peter Tunney's, and he his answer is amazing. He says, oh, it's real easy. Just do it for free for 10 years. <laughs> and if you can write comedy for free for 10 years, you'll have a paid comedy job. <laughs> That's the pain and punishment on the way to becoming a paid comedy writer, which is why so few people, few people right. do it. And the ones that are actually writing for Colbert right now, they were probably the kids that couldn't go to bed because they were so excited to write a little skit for their parents yeah, or whatever it was. And you have to, it starts with passion. You have to be passionate about it because you'll never, you give up, you'll never, you'll never get there. And I think there are very few people that are able to succeed and who aren't passionate about what they do. Because I think most people, you get to a point where, ah, it requires a lot more work, I'm not passionate, I'm going to do something else. You give up, but you push through. When you are passionate, you tend to say like, you know what, I just can't stop. And can't it's, stop. A, it's this weird paradox, right? Because at the same time, if you're so passionate and you love your art and you're so creative, but is it marketable? Is it something that will actually, you know, so it's kind of like this. You have to, so my podcast is called Three Books. I'm doing it because I want to find the thousand most formative books in the world. This podcast is not a big podcast. It's not a very gigantic, successful platform like yours is. Why am I doing it? Because I really want to read those books. And because I want to do that, I will do this for 15 years because I care deeply about that root actual purpose if when it when we don't get money coming in for it when you know when i have to do one and i don't have time when i have to remember that i really want to read the thousand most formative books in the world that's why i'm doing it and that should be enough to drive me for 15 years i was thinking about that earlier when you're i was thinking about the three three books i'm like you know what this is actually a really good exercise and it's smart for neil because to, to if you've read books if you like books to pick three is incredibly challenging yeah do you, and, and do you have an any introspective we're having you on the podcast. i, I know i started yeah. i know yeah. we're not doing it today but like i started to think about it i'm like I can't pick three. Like, wow, I got, there's probably like 10. And then I'm starting to think, well, what does it say about me if I do this one? And then this one at a certain time was special. And, and, but it, it's a great, 
kudos to you. It's a great question because I think you can really get to know someone mm-hmm. and go to a place in the interview process one, depending on the books. So exactly. Great, great, great. I was like, this is brilliant. So last question. I think there's some great tips in here for parents out there and for people who are looking to flex their, uh, their muscles a little bit with regards to resiliency. But to me, something I think so many people are challenged with, including myself, is there's someone you care about and you're trying to help them and it's this fine line of you know how do you give advice mm. to someone who maybe isn't looking for it but but needs it so i get this question a lot when i'm giving say corporate speeches and it comes along the lines of i'm good but my boss is a dick <laughs> it, that's kind of the, it's it's worded a lot nicer because it's in a corporate setting and who knows if the boss is in the room but they're sort of like I got, or I got someone on my team who's kind of like bringing us all down or I'm taking care of a sick parent and I have so little energy because I'm trying to give them all my energy. And so I always say two things. Number one, there's an inoculation piece. And number two, there's a social signals piece. Inoculation means, you know this, when you get on an airplane, they say, if we're in an accident, you know, the oxygen mask will fall out of the ceiling and you got to put it on your mouth first before you put it on your kid. Well, you have a little kid. Would you really actually do that? Would you put an oxygen mask in your mouth before you put it on your daughter's? No, you wouldn't. You would take care of her because it's human nature. You are a parent trying to take care of your child. But the airlines are smarter than you, Jason. They know that you're no good to anybody if you don't take care of yourself. And I say this to people taking care of aging parents or people that have a nasty boss or people that have a coworker that's difficult is the number one thing you can do is invest in your own self-care rituals and practice. Start your day with a two-minute morning exercise. Carve some untouchable daytime. We didn't talk about that, but just getting unplugged for a while is really important. Use some of the self-care practices that we know work, whether that is meditation, whether that's gratitude practice, whether that's exercise, whatever. Then that's number one. Number two is people's behavior only changes through social signals. I harped on my mom for years to develop a stronger social network. Mom, 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 you gotta join Bridge again. Come on, you're sitting at home, you're all depressed. Come on, mom, come on. This is me, like a few years ago. Then I decided to get my dad into Bridge. (laughs) I convinced him logically why he should do it. I found a Bridge group that's near their house on Wednesday nights. You need a partner to play Bridge. Now my mom's husband plays bridge, who needs a partner. She goes, she meets people, they have a bridge group now, she's thrilled. What did I do differently? I stopped asking my mom to go play bridge, but instead I changed the social signals in her life. If you're listening to this and you have a boss that's nasty or whatever, don't ask him or her to go for a 20-minute nature walk with you in the woods at lunchtime. Look for the person on your team with the dusty running shoes in the office, the one complaining that they gained five pounds, the one that says, oh, I really got to get back on the, on the rhythm of going to the gym. Ask that person. They're the low-hanging fruit. They'll say yes. If you get two, it's easier to get three. And if you get three, it's easier to get the whole team. And if you get the whole team, the boss will definitely join because they will look like a huge loser if they don't. Influence them with social signals. It's the only true path to affecting someone's behavior. You can't tell them what to do. They won't listen. I love it. Neil, you are awesome. You are awesome too. Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) Thanks for coming, everyone. Check out the book. You are awesome. Great title. Great book. Thank you. Thank you.